Thank you, Dan and choir and ringers for beautiful worship today. You want to be back tonight at 6 o'clock for Golgotha. If you're watching by way of television, no fee, no admission, no ticket required. Just show up at 12th and Tyler at 6 o'clock tonight for a dramatic presentation of the final days of the life of our Lord, 6 o'clock tonight. And then on Good Friday at 6.30, keep the difference, 6 o'clock tonight, our Lord's Supper observance on Good Friday at 6.30. We'll see you here again in the sanctuary this Friday. And, of course, uh, next Sunday, glorious, as we celebrate Easter. We'll be looking at three passages. Uh, turn to Matthew 21. Also, we'll look at Matthew 26. And then we'll also look at Luke 22. I won't make you turn to every passage about the trials of Jesus, but I want us to look at Matthew 21, 26, and Luke 22. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Ultimate Question. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, they shouted. Jesus' triumphal entry. The adoring crowd makes up a ragtag procession. The lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany are all there. When the Roman officer looks for the object of their adoration, their attention, he sees a forlorn figure weeping and riding, not on a stallion, not in a chariot, but rather on the back of a baby donkey with a borrowed coat draped across the backbone for the saddle. Oh, yes, there was a whiff of triumph on that Palm Sunday but not the kind of triumph that would impress Rome. And unfortunately, also not the kind of triumph that would impress Jerusalem, at least not for very long. The Pharisees were troubled by all the adoration to this rabbi. Shut up your disciples. End all of their accolades, they demanded. Jesus said, I tell you, if the pilgrims keep quiet, then these very stones will cry out to my majesty. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there's a question in the air that day. It's the ultimate question as he enters the city. Look at Matthew 21, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? As he enters Jerusalem, the whole city, all of Jerusalem, is asking the question, Who is this man, Jesus? In fact, the identity of Jesus is the question which looms large throughout the New Testament. It's the ultimate question. It's the eternal question. Who is this rabbi, Jesus. In fact, his cousin John the baptizer had asked the question as well, had he not? Are you the one to come, or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus replied, the lame are leaping, the blind are seeing. I am the one. 
It's a text question today, Matthew 21. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. It's still the question in this last week of our Lord, who is Jesus? Fast forward just a few days now from the triumphal entry to the garden scene. My, how the mood of the masses changes so quickly. Judas kisses. Jesus is bound. The feet of 600 Roman soldiers marches. It was late, and there are no idle saunters in the city. The tramp of the Roman guard must have been heard so very often that it didn't even awaken anybody's sleep, nor did the torches or the lamps. The prisoner Jesus is now guarded by both Roman soldiers and servants of the high priest. Six stages of the trial of Jesus. Six portions. Number one, Jesus before Annas. Only found in John's gospel. You won't find it in Matthew, but stage number one, Jesus before Annas. It's kind of ironic because Annas really isn't the high priest, at least not right now. If his sons, five of them, a son-in-law one and a grandson one, had been puppets when they officially held the office of high priest, then Annas had been the puppeteer telling them what to do. He might not enjoy the title, but he enjoyed the power. Annas' family had surely profited from all the money changing in the temple, the temple traffic, the tables that Jesus had just overturned, before his arrest. And only John's gospel speaks of this first interrogation, but it begins in John 18. What are you teaching, and who are your disciples? And Jesus says, I have spoken openly in this world. I have taught in the temple. I have taught in the synagogues. Don't ask me. I don't have any secrets. Ask those who heard my teaching. Slap. Is that any way to talk to the high priest? Stage number two, Annas sends him to the official high priest, Caiaphas. What a contrast it must have seen at stage two. From just a few days earlier, the purification of the temple when Jesus was overturning the tables, and now he was bound before those who profited from the tables. He wasn't in power as a prophet anymore. Now he was a prisoner. Before Caiaphas, the witnesses finally come forward. I heard him say it. I was there. He said, you tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll build it back. The witnesses struggled to find anything wrong with Jesus. Well, said Caiaphas, what is your defense? Look at Matthew 26 and verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. There's so much chattering amongst the false witnesses. But when it comes to the defense, Jesus is silent. His disciples have fled. There's no one who speaks on Jesus' behalf. And wouldn't you think God would say something 
He'd spoken before at the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Even God doesn't speak on his son's behalf. Silence permeates the pages of the trial. I don't know when it happened to you. Maybe it was in grade school. Maybe it was more recently. Someone accuses you of something you didn't do. You know in your heart you're not guilty. The darts of defense start coming from you, don't they? I didn't do such thing. What are you talking about? You weren't there. You don't know what's in my heart. Defensive. But not Jesus. Jesus is simply silent. And we can't be surprised about that, can we now? Because Isaiah the prophet has said so many years before, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is silent before his shears or slaughter. He did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53. Only one thing remained. There was only one question left. It was a question that Jesus would have to answer. And it's a question that once he answered it, it would lead to his acclamation or his condemnation. There could be no in-between. It's a question that had loomed large over Jesus, and only the demons seemed to get it right in the New Testament. The question is, who does this rabbi think he is? The anointed one? The one upon whom the ages are hinged? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? Caiaphas could disguise the question no longer, and so he asked it. I adjure you by the living God, tell us, are you the Christ? The silence... From the moment he asks a question to the answer of Jesus must seem like an eternity because the answer was everything. You have said it yourself. Nonetheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. To a faithful Jew, there was no way his words were less than blasphemous. No more secret Messiah like in the Gospel of Mark. No more cryptic disguise. Jesus had spoken plainly and openly. He was the Son of Man. You have said it yourself. I'll be seated at the right hand of God. I'll be coming on the clouds of power. The rabbi claims to be the Son of God. Caiaphas turns to the court, what's your verdict? There could be no other proclamation according to Leviticus. He had blasphemed. He claimed to be God, the Son of God. He must die. Now, under Roman dominion, the Jews had no right to enact the death penalty. So they had to conjure up some accusations to please the Romans. They were thirsty for blood, and they couldn't wait till the Romans said it was okay. So they began to quench their thirst for blood. They slap him. They spit in his face, and night passes. Stage number three. 
It was the law that the Jews couldn't have a kangaroo court at night, so they had to do it all over again in the morning at daylight. Stage three, before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin again. It's in Matthew, but I like Luke's version the best. Turn over to, to Luke chapter 22. It's a parallel of Matthew 27. Luke 22, go all the way over to verse 66. When it was day, notice now they do it in the daytime. When it was day... The council of elders, of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, Are you the Christ? Tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said, Yes, I am. I am. Now, if you've ever had any doubt that Jesus actually claimed to be the Son of God, you put it away. Now, you have a right to say he was wrong, but you have no right to say he didn't claim it. Don't twist the truth. He may or may not be right, but he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed it in the language of Daniel, and he claimed it pure and simply. He said, I'm the son of man. That's the image of the Messiah in Daniel. Well, then are you saying, let's get this straight. Are you saying you're the son of God? I am. Crystal clear. The image comes from Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before the Ancient of Days, and to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and men, every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel's vision, he sees the Ancient of Days, God. And coming up to God is one who looks like man. Jesus. And to him is given dominion and glory, and men and women from every nation acclaim him. And of his kingdom, there will never be an end. He was clear. Scene number four. The Sanhedrin had met the requirement by meeting in the daylight in the morning, and now they have to go to the Roman authority, to Pontius Pilate, because they can't enact a death penalty. Arriving at the paved courtyard outside the fortress of Antonia, which overlooked the temple guards, Pilate, the Roman governor, came out to hear what charges they might have against this rabble rouser by the name of Jesus. So what has he done? Pilate's bothered by the whole thing. It's a religious spat. What's he done? Why have you bothered me? The Jewish authorities get defensive. If he weren't guilty, 
he wouldn't have brought him here. He begins to listen to the charges brought by the religious authorities. There are three charges, all trumped up. Number one, he's misleading the nation. Number two, he opposes Roman taxation. Number three, he claims to be a new king, a new Caesar. All political charges and none of them true. He hadn't opposed the Roman tax. In fact, he had said, holding the coin, give unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. He never claimed to be a king of this realm, of this earth. Pilate heard all the trumped-up charges, decided there wasn't anything wrong, and then he learned. He's a Galilean, and Herod happens to be in town. Pass the buck. This is yours, and, and Pilate didn't even like Herod. Hey, he's from your realm. You, you talk to him. So here we come to stage number five, Jesus before Herod. What Pilate is looking for is for another voice to say he's not guilty. Herod says it, I say it, maybe they'll let him go. Now, Pilate sounds and seems like a kind and gentle man in the text. He is not. That was not who he usually was. He'd spill blood at the drop of a hat. He didn't care about anybody. He's looking out for himself in his own realm. Herod, Luke 23, 15, is so glad to meet Jesus. He'd heard about the miracles that Jesus could do, and Herod's really hoping for a magic trick from Jesus. Maybe he'll turn some water into wine. I've heard he could do that. Maybe he'll make someone blind be able to see. I want to see some of his magic. So Herod asks question after question after question to the rabbi, and Jesus says nothing. He won't even answer Herod. You have no power over me, he's saying. I won't answer your questions. He puts a robe of mockery on his back and sends him back to Pilate. Sends him back having found nothing wrong. So scene number six. The final scene, back to Pilate. Pilate number two. I find no guilt in this man, Pilate says. Sometime in the middle of the night, she awakened with her heart pounding and her forehead sweating, bothered about this Jesus. Pilate's wife had a nightmare. It's just an ordinary nightmare. I'll get over it in a moment. You've been there. You wake up and your mind has taken you to an alternative reality. And for a moment it seems real. And you awaken. You adjust. Oh, I'm in my bed. It's okay. But she couldn't get over it. Pilate, I didn't rest well last night. There's something bad going on here. I'm telling you, don't have anything to do with putting this Jesus to death. You wash your hands of it. 
It's not good. Something's wrong. I, I find no guilt in him, Pilate says. I tell you what, it happens every Passover. Now, what he's hoping here, he's hoping that the mob, the masses, will feel differently than the leadership. Sometimes they do. So he tries to circumvent the Sanhedrin and go to the masses. And so he goes to the masses and says, you know, every Passover, this was sort of tossing a bone because they couldn't put anyone to death. He let them free one prisoner every Passover. It was a political thing. Every Passover, we let one of the prisoners go. We have Barabbas here, murderer, insurrectionist. We have this rabbi, this king of the Jews. Now, which one do you want me to let go? Pilate is hoping against hope. The mobs will shout, give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. But the Jewish leadership had already tainted the crowd. They start to chant, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Pilate makes one final attempt to avoid having to crucify Jesus. He realizes by now there could be a mob. There could be a riot. It wouldn't look good to Rome, a riot on his watch. He would either have to crucify Jesus or find a way to stop the riot. And so he sends Jesus to lashes. He's bound, and they beat him, and they spit upon him. They, they take a crown of thorns, and they mash it down on his brow. The blood begins to flow. He brings him out. It is a testimony to the strength of Jesus that he's able to walk it all. He's hoping to buy sympathy. He doesn't deserve death. I mean, he's anything but dead now. Aren't, aren't you... Bloodthirst been satisfied. He brings Jesus out and says, now what? Hoping they'll say, release him. But they begin to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate rushes over to the basin of water and washes his hands. Says, his blood, not on my hands. They say, let it be on our heads of our children. They haul Jesus away to crucifixion. How many questions do you get asked in your lifetime? I think that today's generation get at, gets asked more questions than any other generation because we have more choices that bombard us every day. Sometimes I'll just, I've even said to a waitress before, you just bring me whatever you want to bring me. I, I, don't, I don't even want to think about the question. Are you serious? Yes. You know, 12 toppings on your pizza you get to pick four. Just, you put them on there. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. I'll eat it. She did, and I did. And I had a better evening for not having to choose and ponder. We face so many questions every day. But there's really only one question that matters. Who is Jesus? 
you'll be asked, I bet you'll be asked another hundred questions before the sun sets today. But they don't matter. The only question that ever matters, the ultimate question is, who is Jesus? As he enters the city on this day, the triumphal entry, the question is, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Who is this rabbi? They whisper, what's going on? Why the crowd? Why the palm branches? And then Annas, who are you? And then Caiaphas, who are you? And then Pontius Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And then Herod, who are you? Are you the Son of God? I am. I know how Jesus answered that question. He says, yes, I am. I know how Caiaphas responded. He's got to die. I know how Pilate responded. Oh, He's just a confused guy, and it's kind of weird. I don't want anything to do with this. I know how the mobs responded. They were fickle. First, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then crucify, crucify. So there's only one question today, and that is, how do you respond? Pilate already made his choice. Caiaphas made his choice. John the Baptist made his choice. There's only one, one left on the table today. And how you answer that question today is every bit as much eternally important as how Pilate answered it or Caiaphas answered it. It's a question of ultimate destination. Will I call him Lord now? Or will I not? And of course, there is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and they will all, they will all say, He is the Son of Man. But don't get it right when it's too late. Get it right now. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Let us pray. God, maybe there's some here in this room who've never fully and completely answered that question. Maybe this is the day that she answered that question or he answers that question with all affirmation. You are my Lord and you are my Savior. You are my Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of Israel. You're the one upon whom the ages hinge. However you want to say it, you're the one. Maybe there are others who are here today who want to be a part of a church that proclaims an uncompromised gospel that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God. However your spirit would move us, O Lord, may we answer. Amen.